0: Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. To understand more about the historical roots of white Christian nationalism, we are speaking with Philip Gorski a sociologist at Yale University. You know, we've been at this crossroads
1: before between doubling down on white supremacism or finally turning towards creating a real multiracial democracy in this country. And every time we've made a wrong turn, the, the toll that's going to be exacted from the country at the next fork, fork in the road is, is, is even higher. And, uh, you know, I, I fear that if we make a wrong turn this time, the toll will
0: be democracy itself. Gorski is co-author of the book The Flag and the Cross, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to Democracy, and American Babylon, which is about white evangelicals turning toward authoritarianism during the rise of Donald Trump. In this episode, Gorski explains three things. One, how white Christian nationalists wove together stories from the Bible to create a theological justification for white supremacy and racialized slavery. Two, how economic and political conditions have now created a perfect storm for white Christian nationalism to thrive. And three, why this is not just a fringe movement, but a powerful one that presents a clear danger to our democracy. So, Dr. Gorski, Phil, as you point out, white Christian nationalism is not something entirely new. It goes back to the beginning of America and even before that, that this nation should be ruled by white Christians and white Christian men in particular. But you, you describe well how it ebbs and flows, uh, often under different names. And now, as you describe, it has taken uh, a, a sharp turn, a sharp turn toward authoritarianism, racialized authoritarianism. And it's moving now, I would say, from uh, white majority rule To white minority rule, Uh, and so, but let's get let's go back to the beginning as you as you uh, take us through this, Um, starting at the beginning. You date the roots of white Christian nationalism in this country to 1690. What is special about that date? What happened, and why is it important? Well, one way of defining what white Christian nationalism
1: is is as a a deep story, um, a mythological version of, of American history, and one way in which is deep is it's deep historically, that is, it go back goes back a very long ways. It's, it's really um, like a story that's woven out of three different stories, and those stories are all taken from a particular understanding of Christian scripture. Um, we refer to those three pieces of the deep story as um, the promised land story, um, the end time story and and the racial curse story. And uh, the promised land story is the idea that uh, North America was a sort of a promised land and uh, white Protestants were a chosen people uh, who had a, di- a divinely given right to, to that land and also were therefore justified in, in seizing the land and expelling the native inhabitants. The end time story is a, is, is a certain understanding of biblical prophecy, which... Um, imagines a kind of climactic battle between the natural and supernatural forces of good and evil in which of course um, North America is going to be one of the most important battlefields. And of course, uh, white American Christians will definitely be uh, on the side of the good. And the racial curse story is, uh, takes off from uh, the so-called curse of Ham, um, which is a way of justifying the enslavement of, of, of kidnapped Africans. So, uh, the reason we focus on 1690 is because that's really um, the first point at which I and other scholars have been able to detect those three different threads kind right, of uh, getting entwined together into a, into a single coherent narrative. And one place you can find that is in uh, the history of New England, written by the, the famous uh, Puritan theologian and preacher Cotton Mather.
0: So from the beginning, there was offered a religious justification for stealing the lands of Native people uh, by any means necessary, and for kidnapping Africans for slavery. From the beginning, there were religious justifications offered for both of those. Absolutely. So,
1: uh, you know, it's, it's, there were uh, sort of Puritan and, and other New England colonists who thought that they were, in a sense, making, uh, and I'm only lightly paraphrasing here, a sweet smelling sacrifice uh, to God by, by killing and burning the bodies of, uh, of Native Americans. And there were, of course, also um, you know, folks who provided from the very beginning theological justifications for the institution of, of chattel slavery, uh, which they saw as a, a divinely ordained institution. And you know, I, th- I think it's important just to see here that it, w- that it was the theology that followed the politics rather than the other way around, that the theology was crafted to justify colonization and, and slavery.
0: You say that white Christian nationalism really connects to our current geopolitical conditions like war, immigration, and economic inequity. And that's created, you think, a perfect storm for white Christian nationalism. What, what is that perfect
1: storm? Well, as you said, I, as I sort of uh, take the long view historically, you know, white Christian nationalism ebbs and and, and flows. And uh, so you mentioned three really key preconditions to which I would really add a fourth, which is movements of black empowerment. And so this is why uh, sort of the most uh, radical upsurges of white Christian nationalism that come during uh, Reconstruction after the American Civil War, uh, you know, the Ku Klux Klan is a white Christian nationalist organization. It occurs during, uh, you know, the 20s and 30s. Uh, the first America First movement is a white Christian nationalist organization. It uh, recurs during the civil rights movement, again, because uh, the movement of so-called massive resistance to desegregation in the South is animated by white Christian nationalism. And again, we see it um, emerging again today uh, because you can see uh, how that perfect storm is formed we're in a period of long period of mass immigration to the united states which has made the country much more uh, racially and ethnically and religiously diverse we uh, are still suffering from the after effects of the 2008 recession now from more economic instability generated by the pandemic uh, there's a uh, the sense of uh, of, of the country being uh, under threat. We've been in a kind of a never ending war, first with radical Islam, quote unquote, um, and uh, and now with other forces around the world, which has created tremendous kind of blowback and and, and resentment also amongst uh, folks who served in that war. And now with the arrival of the Black Lives Matter movement, and of course, the election of Barack Obama, uh, a period of, of black empowerment. And so, you know, checking all four of those boxes, um, I can't say I'm surprised that we're seeing the upsurge that we're seeing. And I think it's uh, it's even more severe um, and even more anti-democratic because, uh, you know, the fact is that a conservative white Christian majority is now rapidly becoming uh, a minority. And they're well aware of this and, and very afraid of it and having a very difficult time imagining a more pluralistic kind of America where they might have to share power.
0: To me, that fourth uh, question, and you speak to it later in in your book, is the changing demography. I think that's uh, such a terrible threat to white Christian nationalists. I think their strategy can be summed up in a sentence, which is how to prevent changing demography from changing our democracy. The possibility, the real possibility of America becoming the first nation in the world that has a genuinely multiracial democracy is, I think, the most terrible threat to the losing of that power.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I would just I would just say you know it, it, I think it, it, it's important, especially um, you know for for American Christians to to understand that there have always been voices in the past who have pushed back against the deep story of white Christian nationalism, who um, had political theologies that you know could sustain pluralism, inclusion. Again, also goes back to the very beginning. I would point to people like Roger Williams, uh, many of the many of the abolitionists. Uh, you know, had very well worked out theologies of liberal democracy and, and and cultural cultural pluralism. And, you know, we need to we need to pull on those resources and we need to pull on those resources because, you know, we've been at this crossroads before between doubling down on white supremacism or finally turning towards creating a real multiracial Democracy in this country, and every time we made a wrong turn, that the toll that's going to be exacted from the country at the next fork, fork in the road is 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 even higher. And uh, you know, I, I fear that if we make a wrong turn this time, the toll will be democracy itself.
0: We've always seen, and often don't lift up the way you are right now, uh, white abolitionists who've always been religious dissenters to white Christian nationalism. How does white Christian nationalism use religion to hide race? Or how is whiteness the hidden link that transforms the story into a real political vision for white minority rule?
1: Yeah. So uh, I guess a couple of things I, w- I, w- I would say, say about that. Um, you know, one is that, you know, there was a period where white Christian nationalism was a kind of a colorblind Christian nationalism. It just said, well, you know, personal accountability, personal freedom, free markets, um, everybody's on everybody's on their own and everybody's going to get their their just desserts. And what we're seeing now is a kind of more full-throated, vulgar kind of Christian nationalism, which will speak not even in very subtle ways about racism and will appeal in not very subtle ways to white grievance. So that certainly is uh, there. And as you say, it's been there from the very beginning. I mean, in a way, you could almost say that whiteness itself was hammered out in the forge of white Christian nationalism. I mean, Whiteness was opposed to, you know, heathenism, quote unquote, of the native peoples, and it was opposed to the blackness of kidnapped Africans. And, you know, before that, Americans didn't think of themselves as white. They thought of themselves as English or Scottish or German, right?
0: It's interesting how the ethnicities of Europeans who came here were kind of lost when they came here, because when they came here, they all became white people. And whiteness became the foundation for this New nation, which is, in fact, uh, why it's such a threat. You said it's a threat now. I, I, I think, I think white Christian nationalism is the single greatest threat now to democracy in America, and to the integrity of Christian witness, both of them at the same time. Yeah, you make a you make
1: a very very important point, uh, which I think uh, is is one that faithful Christians on you know all political persuasions really really do need to hear, which is that. This is, this is an ideology which is not serving the witness of the church. On the contrary, it's driving people out of the church. And this has been evident to sociologists for the better part of three decades now, uh, that the way in which some Christians increasingly embraced a particular partisan identity to the degree that their you know party identity reshaped their Christian identity in ways they might not even been aware of, other folks look at that and say, well, if that's what Christianity means, I mean, I don't believe that, or I don't think that's right or just, and so I don't want any part of any of that. If you just look back historically, if you wonder why it is that Christianity has, has withered to the degree that it has in many parts of Europe, it's because in the 19th century, conservative Christians there made the same kind of Faustian bargain, you know, thought that they could uh, protect Christianity by... You know, hiding behind the state and using state power to uh, to pressure folks and to enforce their beliefs, and that has never been the American way. That is exactly the fact that there has been so much pluralism and religious freedom in the United States is why Christianity has done as well here as it has. And uh, I just don't understand why um, you know some folks just can't see that uh, the way in which. Uh, embracing this ideology, confusing partisan identity with religious conviction is uh, you know the worst and most damaging thing that they could possibly be doing for the witness of the faith that they care so much about.
0: So your book lays out so uh, clearly uh, how this has shaped our past, how it's come to our present. Let's look at what's next. You have a quote here in your book, Avoiding the Big One. That chapter is very frightening. Let me just read it. Uh, The insurrection was an eruption of subterranean forces that have been building for some time. Those forces have not disappeared. On the contrary, they are building again. A second eruption would likely be larger and more violent than the first, large enough to bury American democracy for at least a generation. Wow. Unpack that. Say, Say why you're afraid of that. What's next here? I think
1: there are, are a lot of folks who who hope or or wish that uh, the Jan- the January sixth was the end of something. Unfortunately, I think it was really more the beginning of something, and I feel that that's become clearer as time has gone on, as uh, as the big lie was propagated by by Trump and his followers about about a stolen election. And if you think the election was, if you think the election was really really stolen from you. Um, well, why wouldn't you get organized um, and uh, you know try to make sure that the, that the next election went went your way? But I think the the thing that I worry about is that this uh, this episode uh, that we saw the violence we saw at the Capitol on January sixth and the violence against Nancy Pelosi's husband that we're going to see more more and more of that. I, I think we're going to be in a very tense situation this election. Uh, And and next, I'm very, very worried um, about how this is going to going to shake out. And, um, you know, the the path we could be headed down um, is very similar to the path that, for example, Hungary uh, has gone down, that uh, Poland has gone down and that a number of other countries around the world have gone down, where once you have a a sort of anti-democratic party and leader that come into power by electoral means, they set about changing the rules of the game in a way that makes it impossible for their opponents to win. In fact, you know, we're already beginning to see that with some of the so-called electoral reforms. But now imagine, you know, 26 uh, Republican governors and secretaries of state, you know, polling places that are staffed by people who believe in the, in, in the big lie. It's, it's very difficult to see how you really have free and fair elections anytime soon uh, un, under those circumstances. Um, So that's, that's what I'm really worried about. Um, And this combined with continuing forms of voter intimidation and, and and political violence. I mean, I think you have to see the violence and threats of violence as part of a larger strategy. Um, You know, just here, I think the, the parallel is to the Jim Crow South, uh, where, you know, you shouldn't just sort of see the Ku Klux Klan as all that there was to white supremacy. It was part of a much larger system of, you know, poll taxes and gerrymandering and uh, voter suppression and so on and so forth, uh, all of which work together to uh, create a system of one-party authoritarian minority rule. And that is really what I'm worried about.
0: Well, your uh, most recent book uh, says it well with the dramatic title, American Babylon, Christianity and Democracy Before and After Trump. Why'd you write that book? What's behind that for your fear of the future?
1: Uh, so I what I, what I really... I think the, the, the most important point I was trying to make in that book was that Christianity and democracy have historically gone together in the United States. And, you know, as Alexis de Tocqueville in his famous book, Democracy in America, remarked almost 200 years ago. But we shouldn't conclude from the American experience that Christianity and democracy always go together. It has equally gone together with... Authoritarianism with monarchy, even in a perverted form, with fascism and and Nazism, and uh, you know, so the idea that somehow having a bunch of Christians in in control of our government somehow will safeguard our democracy is, I think, is a is a misunderstanding. Especially because I think uh, these concerns about losing racial power are pushing a lot of these folks towards an anti-democratic, any means necessary approach to politics.
0: You and Sam Perry quote Paul Weyrich, really the founder of the moral majority, the religious right, when he said, um, now many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome, good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. repeats it. I don't want everybody to vote. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the election quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. And then you have a section here in the book called Jim Crow 2.0. Explain that. Well, um, you know,
1: it's if you uh, scare folks away from the polls and, uh, you know, don't count some of the votes and, uh, you know, you can make sure that elections go your way uh, just by, um, you know, kind of changing the rules and tilting the play playing field in your direction. And again, that's that's how white supremacism was ma- maintained in the in the Jim Crow South for a century, until the Voting Rights Act of 1965, mm-hmm. effectively. And we're seeing trends in that direction right now, with uh, extreme gerrymandering, with uh, various so-called election reforms um, that are supposed to stop non-existent fraud, but are really. Just uh, designed to keep certain people from voting or to make it much harder for them to vote. And now we're starting to see efforts to get control over who counts the votes, which votes are counted, whether those votes are certified at all. And so, in that sense, you can see the 2020 election was kind of a, a dry run where Trump and his followers found all of the weak links in the chain that leads from your vote to somebody being put into office. And they've got folks stationed at every one of those weak links who are ready to to cut the chain, if necessary, to make sure that their preferred candidates get get into office.
0: Picking up that phrase, a a dry run, uh, historians often note that um, successful coups are often preceded by unsuccessful coups. And as many have pointed out, uh, what Trump was trying to do, and a lot of Republicans with him, was to, in fact, invalidate and overturn this last election. And the only reason that didn't happen was were Republicans, often at the state level, and agencies and, and uh, polling counting places, did the right thing or decided not to do what trump asked them to do and what people don't realize is many of those people have been replaced by uh, an enormous number of election deniers now running for office as republicans and people who are not going to stand up and as you know scholars point out those nations you mentioned those other nations around the world authoritarian rule often begins with winning at the polling place you know what really could happen uh, with an elected uh, person who, in fact, wins an election, then uses the system to not only win the election, but to, in fact, slowly turn democracy back? What would they do? You lay out a number of things, that very compelling. What would such a person do once in office when that system is now being changed to, um, to a more and more authoritarian rule?
1: Well, uh, amazingly, some of the things that would have to happen are, are already happening, right, which is you know, changing the rules of our electoral system in ways that advantage some people and uh, suppress the votes of, of other people. Similarly, you want to change who the referees are. So those are uh, the judges uh, and the courts. One of Trump and Mitch McConnell's biggest successes was getting a lot of federal judges, including, uh, you know, a supermajority on, on the Supreme Court, which would be uh, deciding some of these cases and then um, you know you start to you know once you've changed the playing field then you start trying to sort of intimidate uh, your opponents and just scare them off of the field altogether um, and i think that's that is certainly a, a next step uh, there are you know lots of folks talking on you know in in that movement talking about ways in which they can sort of disempower and go after uh you know folks who they see as their opponents so that would be for example the national media you know whom they've uh, declared as the enemy of the people. That would mean uh, universities where they think there are too many people with uh, progressive or or, or left wing views. Then organized campaigns of, of of intimidation. You know, these kinds of regimes, uh, when they're really fully consolidated, you know, they tend to have paramilitary wings and that kind of vigilante. The, those those militia groups are already forming.
0: Last question and the one that must be on the minds of all the listeners: How do we keep this from happening? How do what can be done? to stop white Christian nationalism? What are the things we need to do at a national level? What's What are the things that could stop it, could reverse it, could even uh, undermine it and defeat it? And then what can people like listeners to this podcast do to counter white Christian nationalism, even in their own communities? Well, very broadly speaking, I think the the key thing is is
1: to build a really broad coalition. And, uh, you know, one way of putting this is say it needs to run from AOC to, to Liz Cheney, right? People who probably don't agree about much, if anything, as far as policy goes, but do agree about the importance of the American constitution and uh, the value of our, our democracy and are willing to set aside those disagreements in order to defend it now. And, uh, you know, are happy to, you know, debate some of those, uh, the finer points of of policy later on. I think, too, that it's incredibly important, and I know you're doing this work right now, Jim, that, you know, a lot of Christians don't agree with this, including even some conservative Christians. It's important for secular progressives to be willing to sort of, you know, open up and embrace folks like that, again, as much as they might disagree with them about certain issues. In terms of what people faith can do, there's only so much that a Yale sociologist or, you know, an academic can really do, um, you know, speaking in the language of sociology or history or statistics. I, I, I think uh, it's, it's just really incredibly important form of individual witness um, that people of faith can undertake to really just explain, you know, as you've often done, why Christian nationalism is so harmful and heretical um, that it, it simply does not. Uh, comport with the Christian Gospels and uh, with Jesus's teachings, which were universalistic, which were inclusive, which uh, centered issues of of justice and concern for the poor much more than you know concerns about uh, say marriage and and sexuality. To say nothing about you know free markets or you know American military power, which uh, it's hard to imagine something that was would have been further from from his mind. But that that's re- that's really important, and I, I think two. You know, one thing that um, folks, one mistake, and I count myself guilty of, of this as well, is that, that, the, that folks, uh, you know, have done is to just focus too much on national politics. National politics are important, but going forward, I think local and state politics are going to be incredibly important, especially depending on how the elections turn out. If, you know, if in twenty January 20th, 2025, Trump is back in the White House, six conservative Supreme Court justices, Mitch McConnell... And um, <clears throat> Kevin McCarthy in charge of Congress, you know, state government is going to become you know the thing that we're really going have to have to defend um, and local government. So you know focus on local politics and state politics too. that's going to be really, really important. and that's something everybody can do. I mean, you can run for your school board, you know you can run to become you know uh, an older person or a council person in, in in your city. There are lots of ways to get involved. and that's going to be so important going forward.
0: In our forum at Georgetown just a couple nights ago, uh, we were saying that part of this is just people standing up and saying, no, no, I don't agree with that. That's wrong. That's not Christian. I'm a white Christian, and I don't believe in any of that stuff. Uh, practically, in their communities. Um, and how how uh, this, uh, uh, this notion of um, going back, as you were just suggesting, to the text. What did Jesus say? Uh, if we're Christians, that means we follow what Jesus said. Here's what he said about loving our neighbor and even loving our enemies. Here's what he said about how we treat the poor. Here's the text. I often say to people, here's the text. Do you believe it or not? <laughs> but go back to our text and our, our gospel and what Jesus is really saying here. Uh, and I think sometimes people on the, on the left or in the liberal uh, world think the answer to something like white Christian nationalism is just more secularism just move away from religion altogether. Let's just get this out of the way so we can. And I think that's a really big mistake, as you're suggesting about the alliances that we need. Because, in fact, the answer to bad religion is better religion, uh, not no religion. So thanks again, Phil. Really appreciate it. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of a nation. Thank you all.